Welcome back to Unspoken, Unsung, the podcast that celebrates the lives and legacies of people we may pass in the street every day, unaware of their extraordinary experiences and accomplishments, unaware of the inspiration their stories offer. Today's guest is Reverend Madison Shockley. When Reverend Shockley agreed to be interviewed for Unspoken Unsung, neither he nor I had any idea how significant our timing would be. We sat down to record this episode on January 6th at 4.30 p.m. Pacific Time. As we were speaking, the United States was reeling from that unimaginable attack on our nation's capital. Reverend Shockley is a remarkable man serving under unusual circumstances. He has a long and distinguished record as an activist for social justice. He's the pastor of a Christian church whose congregation is predominantly white. Reverend Shockley is a black man. His church is very unusual as well. It welcomes all, regardless what religious beliefs they hold, regardless of their sexual orientation or political affiliation. He prefers to be simply called Madison. Even though I've spoken with him about the fact that I'm not a Christian, Madison has never once tried to convert me nor inferred that I'm living my life in error. He and his congregation have been warmly receptive. Madison doesn't just talk about acceptance and social justice. He lives it. Which brings me to another significant aspect of this episode. We didn't intend it, but the timing of this episode makes it available for Black History Month. Madison's life story, his values and example make this episode's timing ideal. With no further ado, Madison Shockley. Reverend Madison Shockley, welcome to Unspoken Unsung. Dan, it's my pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. So, you you've seemed pretty comfortable with me calling you, referring to you as Madison. Yes, we at Pilgrim Church are very, very familiar, and that has a theological foundation. Uh, in in my understanding of progressive theology, we want to flatten the hierarchy, and that starts with us. And so we're all equal in every oh, way. So I don't expect any. Uh, honorific deference, certainly not in person, <laughs> not in personal conversation. Oh, growing up as a Catholic, it would have been unthinkable for me to call a priest by his first name. Unthinkable. Yeah. Yeah. So, how would you describe your calling as a minister? Wow. How would I describe my calling? As well, maybe a- another way to put it is, how would you describe your work in the world? Well, there are very different questions. So let me let me let me give you three answers. Okay. In the African American tradition, there is a call narrative, a call story. Uh, certainly, in the Old Testament, there are very explicit call narratives. The prophets, particularly, mm-hmm. have a fantastical story in some cases, or more pedestrian, but there's usually a story about how they came to understand that God was calling them. 
And that's a very strong tradition in the African-American church. Um, and so that's one answer to your question that, that I could give. Uh, the second, how would, I, how would I understand my call? How would I describe my call? I would, call, I would describe it as all-embracing, all-encompassing. This is not a profession. It is a life. Mm. And, and then the question you asked after that, um, how, would I ex how would I describe my work in the world? Um, John Cobb, probably now 95, 96, if not more, one of the greatest theologians of our generation, gave a speech, a lecture about seven or eight years ago at our annual meeting. And he put it very bluntly. He said, the mission of the church is no less than the salvation of the world. That our work, so as much as my call encompasses my whole life, uh, the mission of the church is to bring the world to a better place, to save the world from itself, particularly from the human evil of which we are so capable. Yeah. And, and it is the church that seeks to call us to repentance and call us to a loving fellowship that Martin Luther King called the beloved community. You know, I'm, I'm reading a, a really wonderful biography of uh, John Lewis. John Meacham wrote it. And yes. Lewis is quoted early on saying that the faith of his parents was one that was pretty much designed around the, after the next life. You know, not so necessarily this life, and it certainly wasn't revolutionary by his standards. And then he met Martin Luther King and James Lawson, and all that changed for him. That was something that, that um, resonated more with him. Is there any, have you had an experience, anything like that at all, too? I would say that growing up, I had a very straightforward kind of Sunday school faith. And then um, I kind of drifted away from the church in my teen years. And then in college, uh, I came back into the church. And while I grew up in a very mainline, actually predominantly white, very large cathedral, United Methodist Church in, in Los Angeles, my, my rebirth, my born-again faith, came through a very dynamic ministry at the St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church. Mm. And so there, the pastor becomes kind of the model for ministry. And um, that was what I understood. And, and this pastor, uh, the Reverend Dr. John Bryant, who is now a bishop of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, was my pastor then, and he was in every way a dynamic speaker, intellectual, a spiritual man. Uh, social activism has always been at the core of the black church and was very much the raison d'etre for the African Methodist Episcopal Church, founded in 1787, to fight discrimination within mm -hmm. the, what was then called the Methodist Episcopal Church. And even though they were in Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, and in a state that no longer had slavery, 
they still discriminated and had the black members to sit in the balcony of the church. Hmm. And so out of that discrimination and the desire for equality among all Christian persons, the African Methodist Episcopal Church was born, born to, in fact, embrace equality. And so mm -hmm. they invited white people to join the church. But after 200 and some years, not a lot have answered that call. Yeah. So in terms of history, when I lived in Williamsburg, Virginia, I visited a historic plantation there. It's called Sherwood Forest, which was the uh, home of John Tyler, former president of the United States. I noticed when I visited the, the plantation that there was a very prominently discoverable pet cemetery. So he had headstones and memorial markers for his dogs and his horses, but you couldn't find one for slaves. So I can't recall there being a, a slave cemetery. I could easily find the, the other gravestones, but nothing about the people that actually worked the plantation, cared for him and his family, and served as meals. So it, it seems that much of history is lost. I mean, so many, so many slaves are, are, their family trees were only discoverable by, you know, purchase records and receipts. But you've got a really rich family. How did you, how did you discover your family? How far back can you go with that? Well, the, 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 the dead end that you described is, is pretty much the dead end of my family. Our, our oral tradition says that my great-great-grandmother was born uh, from the product of a white slave owner and an enslaved woman. But unusual for that time, and this was toward the end of slavery, uh, her white father actually included her and recognized her in his will. Wow. And so she had property after the Civil War and after slavery ended. And that property uh, became the foundation for the farm that they established and her children. And she was able to raise basically a middle-class family. My family on that side were never sharecroppers, always owners and farmers. And my grandfather, who I knew very well, was a farmer in Tennessee, and he, in fact, became, in the 40s and 50s, the first black county agent in Tennessee, in rural Tennessee. And the role of the county agent during those decades was to distribute cash from the federal government to farmers in order not to plant their fields. As we know from the Dust Bowl, that Dust Bowl was created from overworking the land. Mm, mm -hmm. And as that came to be understood, the only way to convince a farmer to not farm and to go without a crop was to pay them for it. Yes. And so the practice of discrimination and racism and white supremacy was, was very much alive. And so the government only gave those grants to white farmers. Mm. But my grandfather was able, uh, by becoming a county agent, to make sure at least the black farmers in his territory received the same underwriting from the federal government 
that the white farmers did. And so my, my grandfather was himself a farmer as well and uh, farmed most of his life and retired at 75, he and, and my grandmother, and they moved to California. Now my parents were already here and our family was established here in California, but my grandfather and grandmother came to live with us when they were 75 and I was probably about you know, 10, 12, in that age. And so I would always sit and listen to my grandfather's stories. Mm. And so that was how I, I stayed connected to my history. And my grandmother lived to be 99. And my grandfather lived to be 106. Wow. And looking at my family on that side, never sharecroppers, education was very much at the center of, of life. Um, my grandfather had desired to go to Tuskegee to study with Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. but he became ill and never made it there. So ultimately he attended what was then Tennessee State Normal College for Coloreds. So he was one of the first to attend there, and my grandmother as well. And so when my own daughter enrolled in what is now Tennessee State University, you know, she's not like you hear so often, you know, the first in my family. She was the fourth generation to attend that school. Wow. And cousins and uncles and aunts had, had been um, enrolled in Tennessee State for generations. I would, I would have thought when I was listening to you just then, I would have thought that, that paying black farmers, a, a black man having the, the, the boldness to pay b black farmers that customarily weren't getting paid in other areas might have been a rather risky proposition. A good insight, Dan. And, <laughs> and that is why, probably not standard issue, but I was also told in one of these stories uh, that my grandfather, therefore, carried a gun. Uh, uh -huh. He carried a gun. Wow. So, your parents were really extraordinary people. Uh, tell us their story. This is, this is, I've heard a little of this before. It was a wonderful story. Well, that's my, my father's side of the family. And, and to finish on that side, my father was a country boy um, in rural Tennessee. And when the first, Second World War came along, uh, and, and he was raised as a Christian, in the Methodist Church, mm -hmm. and he said uh, to the draft board, I'm not going. And they said, what do you mean you're not going? He said, well, Jesus said, thou shalt not kill. Or I learned in my Sunday school, thou shalt not kill. And if you go to war, you're going to kill people. So I'm not going. And they said, well, you want to be a conscientious objector? He said, what's that? He'd never heard the term. Really? He was just driven by his faith and had the integrity of his faith to simply say, I'm not going to kill anybody. And they said, well, just take the physical so we can process you. He said, there's no point in taking the physical because I'm not going. And ultimately, he was enrolled in um, the conscientious objectors camp, which was an alternative to prison. And he worked uh, in a... Uh, boys home for incorrigible boys and he had wanted to be a uh, social worker mm -hmm. so that was good preparation 
And when the war was over, he um, graduated, he went, he enrolled and graduated from Earlham College, which was a Quaker school in Indiana, the second black to en enroll and, and graduate from there. And then in 1949, he came to Southern California and enrolled at USC School of Social Work. And in 1950, this is at the peak of the McCarthy era. And so McCarthyism had the whole nation in a frenzy. And they were ordering every government employee to sign a loyalty oath to the government to prove that you were not a communist, you were not a subversive, you were not whatever. And people of good conscience said that's not required of an American. And he refused to sign this loyalty oath. Mm. And he was no communist, no subversive, no anything except a Christian and a person that stood up for civil rights. And so he lost his job. He was working part time, I mean, going to school and working for the county of Los Angeles as a junior social worker. And he's, once he got his master's degree, he'd become you know, a supervisor. And so in 1950, he lost his job, had to drop out of school. And it was 17 years before he got back to college and finished his degree. He had to do the two years, the, the first year over. It's a two-year degree. And in those 17 years, he worked for a black insurance company. And that's what they used to have. You know, black insurance companies existed because white insurance companies would not insure black lives. Wow. Because if you included black lives in the insurance pool, you would drag the death rate you would drag the, the, uh, the actuarial tables down because mm. they knew that black life expectancy was so much shorter than white life expectancy. Mm -hmm. And so they put in the separate risk pools and the white folks were in one pool and the black folks and black companies were in another pool. So he was, he was that kind of person, so dedicated to his faith and his principles that he wouldn't go to war and he would not sign a loyalty oath, even though it cost him all of that opportunity. And uh, again, the, the irony of it all is the way life works. He was the manager of this insurance agency in Los Angeles. And one day, my mother walks in to apply for a job. <laughs> and she loves to tell the story that at the end of this very personal interview, he didn't hire her. But he asked her if he could take her to dinner. <laughs> and six weeks later, he popped the question. And three, four months later, they were married. Oh, my. So had he not dropped out of school and become an insurance manager, I wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> and so my mother, why was she in California? is the question. She's also from Tennessee. He was a country mouse. She's a city mouse. She was from Memphis. And her family also was, you know, middle class by black standards. Her father was a postman. You know, those were the good jobs back in the day. Mm -hmm. And um, she was going to college. Lemoyne Owen, a historically black college sponsored by the Congregational Church, of which we're part of that heritage as the United Church of Christ. After the Civil War, the Congregational Church sent missionaries to the South mm -hmm. to promote education among recently uh, 
unenslaved persons and established elementary schools, high schools, and colleges. And this was one of the colleges that they established and which continues to this day. And so my mother was probably in her second or third year of college. And even in the 1940s, they were trying some experiments with integration. And there was a, a bridal shop nearby and they had contacted the school and said, do you have some nice young lady that would be appropriate to work in our bridal shop? And so they referred my mother and she had this job. And so she was working there at the bridal shop and one day on her lunch break, she went to this, you know, the Woolworths or whatever to get a Coke for her lunch, uh -huh. to go with her lunch. And she was in line and this was not a sit-in situation. She was just going to buy a Coke. And so she was in line, and she, the white people in front of her, she could overhear the transaction. And the clerk said, uh, Coca-Cola is 10 cents. I showed you how long ago it was. <laughs> Next person in line, Coca-Cola, 10 cents. My mother steps up, Coca-Cola, 20 cents. My mother said, 20 cents? But I heard you charge them 10 cents. Why are you charging me 20 cents? Clerk looked at her and said, well, we charge niggers twice. Oh, my God. And this is in L.A.? No, no, no. This is in Memphis. This, oh, okay. This is the story how she got to L.A. Oh, I got it. Okay. So my mother, to this day, says she has no idea how, but the next thing she knew, that Coca-Cola was all over the clerk's <laughs> head. <laughs> and so um, the clerk called the police. My mother called my, her father. And long story short, my grandfather said to my mother, Baby doll, we have to get you out of here. And he had a, my, my grandmother had a cousin, no, a sister actually, yes, mm -hmm. a sister, my mother's aunt, who had already moved to California. And so she came out to live with her. And um, a month after she got to California, she walked in for this job interview. But if you've heard of or read the book, the Warmth of Other Sons by Isabel Wilkerson. I've heard of it. It is a fantastic book that tells the story of the black migration from the South from mm. 1906 to 1970. Mm -hmm. From the South to the East, from the South to the North, to Chicago and Detroit, from the South to the West. My mother's story isn't in there, but it sure could be. You so, know, there sounds like there's a kind of a common thread in that, you know, the grandfather with what he did and what she did, both were in harm's way, it would seem, and so it might have been almost like a refugee sort of Well, absolutely, and that's, that's what the book Warmth of Other Sons chronicles, mm -hmm. all of the stories of people being crossways with white folks and needing to leave the South, not just for better opportunities. A lot of people did that, but some had to escape the South because if yeah. they had stayed, they would not have been able to survive. And so... The good, the upside, of course, is that my mother met my father. But the downside, and this is the cost of racism that's often imposed mainly on black folks. My mother never finished college. Really? And it's like the same with my father. Had he been able to finish early, he would have gone on and had a 17-year running start on his career. How would that have changed his income if he had been able to become a professional almost 20 years sooner in the County Department of Public Social Services. My mother, what would her earning have been 
if she had been able to finish her college degree and have a professional career. These are real costs that people don't understand sure. that are directly related to racism. Yeah. Now, we as a people, we survive and we thrive, and that's what both my parents did, and they came together and they formed our family. And, and you know, we were, again, we were middle class by black standards, and uh, although I often like to say I was born in the Nickerson Gardens projects in Los Angeles in Watts, I was born there, but... I was only there for six months. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, and my father, again, being a successful insurance agent, uh, and my mother's connections with her aunt, who had, was a successful real estate agent, uh, were able to purchase a home. And so um, in my entire life, never lived in rented housing growing up. Wow. And um, we moved into Watts to a single-family home, lived there till I was about five or six. And then I like to say, we moved from Watts as far north and as far west as black folks were allowed to move in, 1950, uh, in 1961. Mm-hmm. In 1961. And the reason I say it was as far north and west as black folks were allowed to live because of who our neighbors were. Uh, a less than a block away, our neighbor was Elgin Baylor of the Los Angeles Lakers. Mm-hmm. Two blocks away, our neighbor was Rosie Greer of the Los Angeles Rams. And down the road, Dick Bass of the Los Angeles Rams. And actors and entertainers um, all lived in our neighborhood. So if if Elgin Baylor couldn't live any further <laughs> north and west... <laughs> That's saying something. That Yeah. Now, that was before the uh, open housing laws were passed. And so... While we associate segregation with the South, the North and West had their own version, and it's called restrictive covenants, wherein a person could write into the deed of their property that this property shall not be sold to a black person, or a Jewish person, or a Hispanic person, or an Asian person. And all of those covenants uh, and all of those restrictions were written into many deeds here in California. Wow. And so, um, again, it begs the question of the cost of, of racism, that had we been able to buy a property even further west, what would it be worth today? That's true. Versus, you know, again, middle class life, not a bad life, but what's that loss due to the racism that prevented us from purchasing property that we could afford, but was in the white area? You know, I've, I've heard... I've heard you say once um, something to the effect that your family benefited from kind of an unusual form of reparation. Well, that was the story I was telling about my my great-great-grandmother, that because she was included Mm. in her white father enslaver in his will, she was given a stake of property. And that piece of property kept our family out of poverty and out of sharecropping and has produced this middle-class family for five generations now. And on my my mother's side, they too were very successful within the limitations of white supremacy in Mississippi and in Tennessee. Uh, Both my great-grandfathers, what we call Daddy Veezy and Papa Jolly, were in their little in their little holler in Coldwater and Butler, Mississippi, were among the wealthiest people in that area. 
They were they were entrepreneurs and go getters, and so Papa Jolly's daughter married Papa Vizi's daughter, and um, that was my mother's parents. And again, um, when we would visit my grandfather in Memphis, Tennessee, it was always at their home. It wasn't in rented property. It was in their home. And as I mentioned, he was a postal carrier, which was a good job back then. You know, it's a good job right now. Sure. Um, but it was still segregated, and he was limited in the opportunities within the postal office structure. And my grandfather was responsible for integrating the inside office of post offices in Memphis, Tennessee. Right. He, had, he had injured himself on the job, and he said, you know, hey, let me apply for the job behind the desk so I don't have to walk this route. They said, oh, no, no, we don't have any black people working back there. He said, but you should. And long story short, he actually went to Washington, D.C., to the Postmaster General to file his complaint of discrimination and won. Amazing. And so he came back, and the local postmaster had egg all over his face when he had to integrate the counter at the post offices. Wow. So, yeah, so both sides of my family is populated by dynamic and uh, activist. I mean, you have to be an activist to survive <laughs> and let alone to thrive. Well, they sound, cause some of the other qualities that came to mind for me are resilient, that very um, persistent, yep. Yep. which seems yep. to have carried over because the value, I mean, the story of your father going back after 17 years yes. and getting his degree. The, the value of education was clearly not lost on his children, was it? Well, no, I mean, for us, it was, it, was, it was never a question in our mind that we were going to college. And it, it fascinates me now when I look at the different routes that people take, because in our household, that was a given. It was, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, college. It was just never a question. And so they produced four children, my sister went to Occidental, my brother went to Stanford, I went to Harvard, my other sister went to Wellesley. So what was your experience like at Harvard? Very interesting. Uh, culture shock, three different ways. A little background, so we moved to what would then have been called West LA. And we moved for an educational purpose. My sister, my, who is now Deputy Mayor of Los Angeles, Brenda Shockley, mm. was um, from our address in Watts, was going to go to Washington High School. And it didn't have the best academic reputation back then, so forth, so on. So my father moved our family three blocks away from Los Angeles High School. Los Angeles High School, the, 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 the high school of Dustin Hoffman and uh, uh, Ray Bradbury and other you know, prominent mm -hmm. folks, because it was on mm -hmm. the edge of, of Hancock Park. Mm -hmm. And so when we moved to the neighborhood in 1961, L.A. High, Los Angeles High School, was probably, and I'm just rounding it off, 70% white, 20% uh, Asian, and 10% uh, other, and probably less than 5% black. When I got to L.A. High, it was 70% black instead of 70% white. Wow. It was still 20% Asian and 10% other. And it wasn't 5% white. There were maybe 10 whites 
<laughs> in a high school of almost 3,000 students. Had the academic standards stayed high? They had stayed high. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I just told you, I graduated from L.A. I went to Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what I remember about that is, you know, I applied to Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Dartmouth, uh, University of Pennsylvania, Pomona College, uh, UC Berkeley, uh, and Stanford, and uh, MIT. The only school I didn't get into was MIT. Hmm. And so I remember, though, in the recruiting season, we got people coming from all those schools, and the Harvard um, recruiter basically came and said, I had to come here to check that I went to the school, but none of you all are going to qualify, so you know, basically don't bother. You know? So I had you know, not even had any interest. I, I was going to Stanford. My brother had gone to Stanford, and he, was, uh, he enjoyed it. He was a big football star. In fact, Dan, <laughs> this past January 1st of 2021 uh -huh. was the 50th anniversary of Stanford's first win after decades at the Rose Bowl, oh. in which my brother played uh -huh. with uh, Jim Plunkett. And uh, so it was 50-year anniversary of, of that victory, which shocked the nation because Stanford was not known for football then. And uh, so I was like all set to go to Stanford and walk on campus and everybody knows my name. He was big shock. I was little shock. <laughs> But my mother and others and my mentors and others said, you can't not turn down the opportunity to go to Harvard. So it really wasn't my first choice. But mm -hmm. So I, I went there, and because L.A. High had, was a public school mm -hmm. and was now predominantly black, even though we lived still in what was relatively West L.A. and didn't think of ourselves as, as ghetto, <laughs> you know, uh, when I got to Harvard, I felt like a ghetto kid hmm. because most of the black students there had gone to pri private schools and prep schools through the, the, the A Better Chance program, this thing called ABC, A Better Chance, and they recruited top students in the South and shipped them off to Andover and Exeter and all these, uh, St. John's and all these fancy prep schools across the country. And those were the black students there. There were very few public schools. Uh, black students there. And then nothing to say of the white students. Again, Andover, Exeter, Phillips Academy, blah, blah, blah. And so I had this real kind of class shock mm -hmm. yeah. between me and the other black students. Right. And again, the white students were just off the charts. Uh, a moment ago, you said that your, your, your spouse was a direct descendant of, um, was it? Rutherford Rutherford B. Hayes. Rutherford B. Hayes. Yeah. I happened to meet Miles Standish the fourth and John Alden the fourth. <laughs> and when when they told me how rich their families were, I couldn't sleep for two days just trying to imagine how much money that was. That's why I say black, I say middle class by black standards. Sure. I had no idea how much money white people had. Yes. Until I got to Harvard. It was, it's, I, it was another kid. Let's just say his name was um, something like uh, uh, Roberts. Mm -hmm. Hey, so where, 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 where did you grow up? Robertsville. Roberts from Robertsville. 
town was named after his grandfather, you know. Yeah. People who founded, you know, it's just like being from L.A. and your name is Mulholland. <laughs> you know, uh, the land barons of the robber baron ages. That's who these folks were. It's, I mean, my other classmate was Bill Gates and, and Steve Ballmer and, and that class of tech giants now. You know, just, so I had this, just, just this disorienting class differential. And then, of course, I had the weather. Uh, oh, that's the other yeah. reason I wanted to go to Stanford. Uh-huh. <laughs> I enjoyed California's weather. So I, I remember I, I played football myself, but not nearly on the 1A level like my brother. But I played freshman football at Harvard, and uh, I remember they used to tease me because I would wear a ski cap under my helmet. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember one day I was going to practice, and... Um, I looked out at one of those time temperature clocks, you know, that they used to have. Yes. And I looked at it, and it said 26 degrees. And I said, oh, this is the coldest day of my life. <laughs> now, this was November. I had no idea I'd be saying that for the next three months <laughs> as it just dropped and dropped and dropped and got colder and colder and colder. So it was not, not, not fun. So was it also cold socially for you there? Well, you know, it was it was another ghetto basically because I have some very good and long-standing friendships from Harvard, mm-hmm. all black. Uh, there just wasn't the social communication between mm-hmm. black and white at, mm-hmm. at the school. I don't know any, maybe one or two uh, would recognize my name, and I you know I've said hi to them since. But so you know, we had a good time though. You know, we, we we had a good time, but it was so it was isolating in in that sense socially. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, except for the football team. So the few people I do know, you know, football has that way. Sports has a way of, of breaking those barriers. And what were you studying then? Well, I went as pre med, uh, but then discovered that really my my true call was was leadership, which you know led me to major in government. Mm-hmm. and uh, poli-sci or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a challenge. Uh, so I said the, so the third shock was, was academic. So while I had a good education, Andover, Phillips, Exeter, I, I remember freshman w- week, basically. I mean, we hadn't been there long enough you know, to, to buy all my books yet. And I went into one of my teammates' uh, dorm rooms, and he had a whole wall of books set up on a bookcase. And I said, James, we just got here. When did you have time <laughs> to buy all these books? And you know what he said? Now, he had gone to Exeter. He said, Madison, I, I brought them with me. The only thing I brought with me was a Sports Illustrated. <laughs> and this guy had books a- a- across the wall. And then I get to calculus class, and I'm, I bought my, my brand new book. Now, they were expensive books, right? And yeah. so I had heard that you could buy used books. You know, same information, you know, just little dog-eared or whatever. So I was sitting in class next to this kid, and I said, oh, hey, I see your book's all marked up. Where, where'd you buy the used book? He said the same thing. He says, this isn't, well, it's used. It was used by me, mm. senior year in high school. He had the same textbook 
his senior year in really? high school that he had freshman year in college with all the answers written in it. Astounding. So that was the third shock was academic, you know. And so, um, yeah, it it wasn't a pleasant experience. Yeah. Not quite actually. And then, of course, you've heard me tell the other story. Freshman year, I'm walking around Cambridge, and if you know Cambridge and Harvard, Harvard's not one of these classic campuses that's, you know, 200 acres in like Princeton or something or whatever, how many acres, but just and a, a, a separate, distinct, here's the school. It's very integrated with the city of Cambridge, very much. Now you've got Harvard Square, of course, mm-hmm. but that's just about it. And then once you leave Harvard Square, you're Cambridge here, campus there, Cambridge here, it's all intermingled. So I was coming back on t- into Harvard Yard from Harvard Square. And um, we had, you know, on most college campuses, they have their own police. And so everybody kind of understood that the Cambridge police didn't come on campus. Mm -hmm. And I'm in Harvard Yard, so this is definitely campus. And I notice a uh, police car, Cambridge police car, pull into Harvard Yard. And I say to myself, hmm, that's interesting. Didn't pay any attention. So I'm walking... on down the way and I'm going to visit a friend in one of the dormitories in the yard and then I see the police car pull down the road that I'm walking on and I I get in front of the dorm where I'm heading and the police car pulls up screeches its brakes police jump out I'm like wow something must be going on in Gray's Hall I didn't know it was me Hmm. (laughs) that was going on Mm-hmm. And they jump out and they say, hey, you, stop, right there. I'm like, what, me? And I, it was winter, so I had my hands in my coat pocket because I didn't even have gloves. And they said, take your hands out of your pockets, slowly. Wow. Okay, what's going on? And so they kind of pat me down. They come up to me and ask me a couple of questions. And, and then they, and oh, they say, do you have any ID? Fortunately, I did have my Harvard ID with me. If I didn't have my ID with me, I might not be sitting here today. Wow. But I did. And so they saw the ID and they let me go. I said, well, hey, what, what, why did you stop me? Oh, well, you fit the description. Somebody the got description. Mugged. Yeah. Somebody got mugged in the subway and you fit the description. Yeah, right. You know. So that was my freshman year at Harvard. So somewhere along the line, you made a, a rather dramatic turn toward the ministry. How did, how did you find your pathway there? Well, that goes back to my call story. Yeah, yeah. So um, in my sophomore year, I'd come home for winter break. And um, at Harvard, they have a very long winter break. You have two weeks of formal break. And then you have four weeks of what they call reading period which is you study for finals. Your finals are after Christmas. So you can basically be gone for six weeks at Christmas, and that's what I was doing. And so I was home, and my brother was back from, you know, he graduated and everything, and he was home. And uh, my brother had been saved. And if you know anything about Pentecostalism, when you get saved, it's your life's work to save everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Starting with your family. 
So as I said, we were we were middle class black family, which meant I shared a bedroom with my brother. My sister shared a bedroom with my other sister. You know, so we're in the same bedroom. You know, and in our in our bunk beds, and um, every night my brother says, "Madison, you got to go to church. Got to go to church. Got to go to church. Got to go to church." I just got tired of him talking about church. <laughs> so I said, "Okay, okay, if it'll shut you up, I'll go to church with you." And he took me to Truvine Pentecostal Apostolic Church, which was a storefront church on Washington Boulevard in Los Angeles. And I don't know if you know what a storefront church is. Oh, I think I do. Yeah, okay. So you got the shoe shop, you got the cleaners, you got the church, you got the stationery store, you know, they're all lined up there on the boulevard. Yeah. And so this storefront was, you know, just, you know, about 20 feet wide and and, uh, 70 feet deep. And they had about 30 folding chairs and they had built a little stage for the pulpit. And there were about, you know, 10 adults there and 15 kids. And I remember I was sitting there with my brother and then the pastor said, uh, would the True Vine Pentecostal Apostolic Choir please come forward? And everybody got up and went forward and sang to me. (laughs) And um, now the pastor was not very eloquent. I'm not even sure if he could read. I don't know. He just wasn't very articulate. And his wife was the choir director and, and, and she was musically illiterate and, and the reason I know that is she went to the piano and she just started hitting random notes until uh-huh. she found one that she liked and she kept hitting that for the key and then she started saying have you tried my Jesus he's alright have you tried my Jesus he's alright and they sang for the next 45 minutes and the service went on, the pastor preached, and I don't remember much of what he said, but I remember one thing. He said, you know, human beings are like appliances. Without plugging them into a power source, they can do nothing. And so the only question is, what's your source of power? Is it mm-hmm. God or is it the devil? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So after the two and a half hour service, I, I still wasn't saved. But I was curious. I was curious about why those people were there. What were they connected to that that I was not connected to? And so that kind of started my my search, my faith journey. So you saw something in them that you you couldn't put your finger on? I was curious. I was Mm -hmm. was mostly basically curious. What was animating these people? What was animating their devotion, their their sincerity, the the power that they were responding to? Mm -hmm. And um, so... But at that time, it was time to go back to school. So I didn't really know how to proceed in understanding that or, 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 or finding out more. And it's just one of those woo-woo things. I swear, one of my friends that I had known for the two years that I'd been at school, almost like the day I got off the plane back, you know, that January, asked me, Madison, do you want to go to church? Now, I'd known this guy for two years. He'd never asked me to go to church, as far as I can remember. And so I said, you know, yeah. Because that was my opportunity to find out more about you know, what I had experienced. And he took me to St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church in Central Square in Cambridge. Mm. 
and this was the church I was telling you about earlier. It was, this is now 1975, and this is the prototype of what we now call a megachurch. Mm -hmm. uh, this was, a, again, a fantastic, dynamic pastor with a great 50-voice choir. It, it catered basically to the black students in, in Boston and Cambridge. And you, you had, this is now on Sunday mornings in a college town, you had to get to church an hour early to get a seat. Wow. Not in a storefront church, but in this major historic building that held 700 people and was 90% college students. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it was quite an, an experience. Okay, so you said that the, uh, the cathedral there, that the um, congregation was largely a student congregation? Yes, I mean, it was, it was a historic church. And this young dynamic pastor, John Bryant, had come there and was attracting students uh, from all the colleges around. And that revitalized the church and made it, as I said, into this prototype of the, the, the megachurch. Mm -hmm. I mean, they had two services. I mean, you could get a seat at the 8 o'clock if you wanted to get up that early, but most college students weren't thinking about that. And then at the 11 o'clock, you, you'd have to stand in line uh, to get in. But so I went there and was a fantastic, eloquent preacher, uh, dynamic choir, beautiful historic building, such a contrast to the storefront. Sure. And I walked out and I said, uh-uh, that's not what I'm looking for. I, I could understand why the people were there. They were there for the music, they were there for the preaching, you know, the, the, the boys were there for the girls, the girls were there for the boys, the boys were there for the boys, whatever. Um, so I could see why they were there with all that was going on. I wanted to know why those other people were there uh. with nothing, with a barely literate pastor and a choir of, you know, six people. I wanted to know why they were there. Yeah. That's what I was searching for. But I didn't know where to go to find that again. And so I kept going to St. Paul. And ultimately, I did find underneath all of that, you know, people of genuine, passionate, and deep faith. And that's what drew me in ultimately. And so a few weeks later, I found myself, you know, answering the altar call as we have in the black church. And I joined the church a few weeks later. And probably, let's see, if that was in January or February, uh, by Easter, in fact it was, it was Easter weekend of that year that I answered the call to preach, that I felt that calling So as God. a Catholic, I, I never heard a term like an altar call. Is that essentially being called to proclaim your faith and become baptized? Yes, yes, uh -huh. yes, okay. yes. And, and in, in that tradition is not only to be, if you haven't been baptized in water, it's also to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Ah, uh, yes. You know, and to be born again and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I, I, I was reintroduced to faith in that tradition and experienced being born again and really feeling the power of the Holy Spirit in my life and uh, answering the call to preach and, um, and going on from there. Which meant that you probably had to leave Harvard and go to a seminary? Well... 
one wouldn't have to leave college to go to seminary. You usually go to college. You usually go to seminary after you finish college. Oh, okay. I happened not to finish for another reason, which you know everything is a mixed bag. So part of this neo Pentecostal fundamentalism that was uh, part of that AME experience in that church was this you know this striving for holiness. That's mm-hmm. what the Pentecostal movement is about. So I went to my pastor one day because I'm a college kid and I'm, you know, I got girlfriends and so forth and so on. And I'm asking him, so how do I be a Christian if I've got, you know, this girlfriend? And the pastor looked at me and he said, he quoted 1 Corinthians 7. He said, it's better to marry than to burn. So I got married. Now I look back and I say, why didn't you tell me to just be celibate? <laughs> but so uh, I got married as a junior in college, and that you know that just doesn't work, uh, not for me at least. And, yes, yes. You know, I had to go to work. I had to raise a family. The baby started coming, you know, and all that kind of thing. And so, try as I might, I, I was not able to finish. And so I left school for that reason and um and came back to california but i was still in the ministry you'd been ordained by that point no no i had started the process toward ordination Oh, okay and see in in the black church in the 1970s and and all the time prior to that for the you know 300 years prior to that formal education wasn't very available and so the church the black church evolved you know, outside of the opportunities for formal education and formed both their own internal educational processes, but, but, but more so developed a, a spiritual uh, path toward ordination. Mm-hmm. So the question that was asked was not so much, have you earned your BA and your divinity degree before you're ordained to qualify you for ordination right right the 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 question in the black church was have you been called and can you preach <laughs> you know mm-hmm. and so even in the 1970s probably yeah i, I would venture to say as many as 80 percent of black pastors in america did not have a seminary degree I would say probably 50% did not have a college degree. Wow. Uh, in the white church, you know, they call it the 4-3. Four years of college, three years of seminary, you get ordained and you become a pastor. Now, whether you've been called or not, <laughs> whether you could preach yeah. or not, you know, may or may not enter into the question. And so I was at that kind of t- time when you didn't need formal education to become ordained in the black church. Mm-hmm. If you could get it, fine, but it wasn't required. And in fact, if you got it, some folks looked at you a little suspiciously. In fact, they didn't. Some folks didn't call it uh, seminary; they called it cemetery, oh, no. the place where faith goes to die. Oh. <laughs> so, um, I entered the ministry, and I was. I still wanted to finish my education. All my upbringing still had that drive to finish. So I was, you know, working day, day labor, quite frankly. I was a day laborer in Los Angeles going to 
Cal State LA. I only had one year to finish. And I'm going through the ordination process in the AME Church in Los Angeles that I had transferred to. And I'm sitting in the pastor's office one day, and he's talking on the phone to the bishop. And I overhear my name. Uh, my pastor said, you're going to send Shockley where? And so after he got off the phone, I said, excuse me? <laughs> what, what, what just happened? He says, well, the bishop's going to send you to St. Louis. And... In, in you know you're a Catholic, so you understand bishops assign the pastors, right? Whereas in the Baptist tradition or other uh, more independent church traditions, the local congregation in our UCC tradition, the congregation calls a minister. Mm. But in Methodism, even United Methodism and African Methodism, uh, the bishops assign the pastors. So the I, I wasn't uh, I had been ordained what they call a deacon which is an intermediate ordination on the way to being a full-fledged elder of the church. And so they accelerated my ordination and sent me to St. Louis as a pastor at 23 years old. Mm. And I said to the bishop, but I haven't finished college. He said, well, three years at Harvard, that's enough. (laughs) But when I got to St. Louis, there was um, Eden Theological Seminary. And so... I planned to, I, in St. Louis, I finished my degree at University of Missouri. So mm-hmm. there's that Shockley persistence. Again. Yes, yes. Just, just keep going, just keep going. Yeah. And so I finished my undergrad, and then I was going to apply to Eden Theological Seminary. And in the African Methodist Episcopal Church and then United Methodist Church, your appointment by the bishop is annual every year. And the bishop can reappoint you f- every year for 30 years to the same church or the bishop can move you to a different church every year for 30 years. So usually in the early part of your career in ministry, you kind of seek your level. So you kind of move fast in the early years until you kind of get where you're going. So I'd been there for two years and then the bishop moved me to Denver. I said, okay, all right, well, it's a better church, much nicer city, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> much nicer city. And um, so I said, oh, yeah, I can go to um, Isla School of Theology in Denver. Fine, fine. And then the bishop moved me again. And he moved me to Seattle. And I said, bishop, bishop, please. And so you bishops have total fiat over your life. You, mm-hmm. you, you, you can beg them, but you can't really resist. Because when you're ordained in that tradition, you take a vow to go where the bishop sends you. Because if everybody said, ah, I don't feel like going, the whole system of True, yeah. You know, just like the military, I guess. And so I said, Bishop, I'm trying to go to school. If you're not going to reappoint me to my church here in Denver, then I'm asking you to not give me an appointment at all. And I'll just go to school. And that was on Saturday, and then on Sunday, the appointments were read out at the end of the annual conference. And I'm sitting there thinking, either I'm going to be reappointed to Denver, or I'm not going to get an appointment. And he says, Shockley, Walker Chapel, Seattle, Washington. I'm like, but, but, doesn't matter. 
packed up everything on. Now, two asides. Um, in Denver, in 1981-82 this was, there was police brutality, just like we hear sure. about every day. Yeah. And there were two incidences almost back-to-back. One was a, a black clergy person, Lutheran social services director, jogging down the street. And police car pulls him over and puts him you know, prone on the ground in the middle of the street because he fit the description. And they had a shotgun to his head, and police officer says, you better not move. And then this other police car is coming at rapid speed, and the other cop says, watch out for the car. So he doesn't know whether to get up and get shot or lay down and get run over. You know? So that, that made uh, some noise. And then subsequent to that, a member of my church, 10 years old, uh, was walking home. You, know, you think of Tamir Rice, 13 years old. It was just a kid walking home. And in the housing development where he lived, there had been some series of vandalism, you know, people knocking out the, the street lamps or whatever. So he was walking underneath one of those light fixtures that had been knocked out. He didn't knock it out. He was just walking home. Off-duty cop sees the kid, sees the light, jacks him up, grabs him, twists his arm behind his back, breaks his arm. The kid's 10 years old. He weighs, you know, 70 pounds. Wow. So his mother told me what had happened. I told, and so I called my colleagues. I said, hey, what are we going to say or do about this? You know, we got these two incidences. So I call a press conference. Again, now I'm 25 years old. I call a press conference to protest police brutality. And I, I thought maybe the black newspaper might show up. And I thought that my colleagues would. Mm -hmm. Well, the black newspaper didn't show up and neither did my colleagues. But every other media outlet in Denver showed up. All the radio stations, the news sta radio stations, the news television stations, Denver Post, Denver Rocky Mountain News, all showed up. And there I am by myself. And so I hold this press conference and I tell them the stories of uh, my member and this other uh, gentleman who were both there. And I say, you know, police are using uh, police state tactics in, in, in policing black bodies. And this is 1983 and so forth and so on. So, you know, it goes on and makes the news, blah, blah, blah. And so a few months later, the police union, and, and this is still the problem to this day. The reason we can't get real reform, why we can't hold police officers who misbehave accountable, why the police officers who shot Mr. Blake in, in, in Minnesota in the back when he was no threat to any of them. Now, they reported again that, he, that there was a knife in the car. They've never reported that he had it in his hand. They've never reported that he threatened any officers with it, but they use that as the pretext to justify, and even said it. So the police officer could have argued self-defense. How do you argue self-defense when you don't even know there's a knife in the car? Yeah, yeah. That was discovered after the fact. This guy was just, and he had two of his, two or three of his kids in the back seat. Shot the guy in the back. No charges will be filed. So, you know, 19... 83, 2000, 
20. Same thing going on. So carrying on in my family's activist you know, tradition, carrying on in the activist tradition of the black church is what I understood myself to be doing. The, 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 police, the police union sued me. Really? Sued me personally in civil court for libel against the police officer that I said had abused this young man. Now, they didn't expect to win, but it's a silencing strategy. I now have to defend myself in court. I didn't have any money to hire a, a civil rights lawyer and fight this case against the union. Yeah. So ACLU of Denver represented me. And by the terms of the agreement we reached, I can't tell you any more than that. (laughs) (laughs) But my bishop, and and also at the time I was going through a divorce. And so my bishop says, Shockley, I'm gonna save you from yourself, basically. I'm gonna get you out of town because you got this lawsuit, you just got divorced. I said, Bishop, the church is fine. The lawsuit is settled. Just leave me, but no, off to Seattle I go. And so, I get to Seattle. Now, I said, Bishop, I'm trying to go to school. Bishop told me straight up, there's a seminary in Seattle. Now, this is before the internet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't have access to a directory of seminaries. I'm just, you know, there was one in town. That's where I was going. I get to Seattle and find out there is no seminary. Now, I I look at that and I think of the story of, of Joseph and his brothers. They meant it for evil when they sold him into slavery, but God meant it for good because it turned out to be the salvation of his people. So whatever the bishop meant by sending me there and lying to me, (laughs) it got me there, so it served his purpose. But what it did for me were two life-changing things. One, it freed me from the geography of the seminary. Mm. I was just choosing a seminary that was close, that was accredited, and that was, you know, in my in my city. Right now, the whole country opens up. So I did tell the bishop. Finally, I realized I'm a free man. I'm a free. I'm a grown ass man. I can do what I want. Uh-huh. And I told the bishop, Bishop, you've given me this appointment for this year. I will honor my obligation, and I will serve this year. But I'm telling you now, you need to find someone else to replace me because I'm going to school. And so then the whole country opens up and now I choose a seminary not by geography, but by theology. And so Black Liberation Theology had just been published, a book by James Cone called Black Liberation Theology. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to study. James Cone was AME. That's who I wanted to study with. I thought he was going to be down at Howard Divinity School or the ITC Consortium of Black Seminaries in Atlanta. I look him up and no, he's in New York City, a Union Theological Seminary. And so I said, that's where I'm going. And so I, that's, that, that set me off on a whole different course of faith. That's the one great thing that happened out of the bishops lying to me. The second thing was, it was in Seattle that I met my wife, Gail. Hmm. And we met in November and we got married in June, and we moved to New York in August of 1983. (laughs) 
and went off to a seminary. Wow. If we fast forward a little bit, uh, your your experience with the ACLU and all the things that that happened, you know, when you took on activism, mm-hmm. you had an experience after the LA riots of being a peacemaker, did you not? Yes. Yes. How did that come about? Um, one other side before I go into that, the ACLU, and I currently serve on the San Diego Imperial County Board of Directors of the ACLU, mm, mm-hmm. but I told you about my father. Yes. Now, the reason, one of the reasons he was able to go back to school, one of the primary reasons, was the ACLU represented the class action case of all those people who lost their jobs to the loyalty oath. And my father was part of that. So when that class action was settled, he had the resources to go back to school. Oh, man. So I'm the second generation to be represented by the ACLU. Oh, isn't that the best? Yeah, so I was pastoring then uh, in 1992 when the events of the spring, as we refer to them, or as I like to call it, the upriots. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing is, you know, what, what nomenclature you use determines your politics or, your, or, your, or reveals your politics. So if you call it an uprising, you're, you're a progressive. Right. If you call it a riot, you're, you're a moderate conservative. So I call it an upriot because <laughs> two things actually happened. There was a le- legitimate and, and spontaneous political uprising that gave opportunity for a criminal riot because the political uprising was focused like today's uprising or riot, if you will, or whatever you want to call it, on the police department, not the Capitol, but that's where the political uprising was focused. Mm -hmm. And the police department got so nervous, they called in all their police force to protect the headquarters, which left the city unpoliced or less policed, and the riot broke out. So... That went on for seven days about, and it was surreal, just like what we've seen today is, is surreal. But to be in the midst of it, Los Angeles, the second largest city in the country, one of the largest cities in the world, to walk down Wilshire Boulevard and realize that the city is totally out of control looting and fires everywhere you look it was it was like i say the only word i can think of is surreal and so after six seven days of this um we had a city to put back together and while the public understands this conflict as primarily white and black and have much to do with that. Again, police brutality. And, you know, unfortunately, as I mentioned earlier, there are costs of racism, and the costs of racism are usually uh, borne by black folks, the victims of racism. Mm -hmm. But riots impose costs on the whole society, and that's where racism, the racism of the police, Los Angeles Police Department, which had beaten Rodney King to a pulp for a speeding ticket, and again, caught on video. That was the first act of police brutality caught on video in real time. 
That's the historic part of that. Not that Rodney King got beat. He was not the yeah. first black man to get beat by the police or not the last. Yeah. But the first to be caught on videotape in real time. And, and black America said, finally, at last, we've got the evidence that will prove unequivocally what we've been saying for 250 years. You'll note, Rodney King got beat in 1991. The riot broke out in 1992. Yeah. So black people were very patient. Very patient. They did not break out when the video came out. But when the police officers were fully exonerated and justified in the actions that we saw on that videotape, that was too much. But yet, we still have a city. And so in the wake of this riot, which also had the, uh, the, 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 the story underneath it, the more local story was the conflict between black and Korean communities. Korean merchants, liquor stores, grocery stores, mom and pop stores in the black community had become a flashpoint. A young woman, Latasha Harlins, a teenager, uh, objected to being gouged overcharged for this bottle of orange juice. And kind of reminds me of my mother. Mm -hmm. She basically threw it back at the clerk. Mm -hmm. You said, how much? Keep it. And so she just threw it back on the counter. Now this was back in the days of the plexiglass yes. from, from countertop to ceiling. So she was no threat to the clerk behind the plexiglass. But the clerk pulled out a gun, came out, and shot Latasha Harlins to death as she was walking out of the store. And that woman was given no jail time. And so that tension was also simultaneous with the events of Rodney King. So when it broke up, when it broke out, all of that got into the mix. So I had taken it upon myself, kind of like Denver in 83, to convene people from black community, white community, and Asian community, Latino community, at my church uh, in Los Angeles, Congregational Church of Christian Fellowship, United Church of Christ. And we called it Community Conversation. And I said, this is not a one-off. Because the conversations that we have to have cannot be had in one evening. Mm -hmm. And that you have to be prepared to be hurt, insulted, and have your feelings uh, stepped on. Because if we're going to be honest about who we are and where we are and why we are at, at odds, we have to tell some truths. And those truths are not always pleasant. And what we perceive as a truth is not always accurate, but until we get it out, on the table, it can't be corrected. So we have to be prepared to hear uncomfortable things so that we can get through it and get to that beloved community that Martin Luther King mm. was preaching about. And that community conversation went on for almost two years. Wow. So the communities or the, the congregations that you served to that point had all been African-American? Yes, yes. I pastored in, in, in St. Louis, in Denver, and in Seattle. 
And then when I came from the AME Church over to the United Church of Christ, again, uh, African-American congregation. So now you're the pastor of a predominantly Anglo church. Yes. In a Caucasian, in a city with a nearly non-existent <laughs> black community. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and that was intentional on my part. Yeah. And I found out later it was intentional on Pilgrim's part. So, I mean, I realize now, as I alluded to earlier, the Congregational Church, which is the predecessor to the United Church of Christ, was a populated, or, or was also an activist church. They were the church of the abolitionists in New England. They were the church that sent, you know, educational missionaries uh, to the South to establish schools and colleges. And so from those schools and colleges, primarily, the, you have a long but very small historic African-American presence within the Congregational Church. Mm -hmm. uh, Andrew Young, great civil rights civil right. rights leader, was, was uh, Congregational. He, he pastored the first Congregational Church in Atlanta. And so it's a long but very deep and strong tradition. And so you've got black congregations scattered throughout. Now, again, less than four or five percent of the entire denomination. And so I realized after I had... Um, determined I wanted to, to move on from Los Angeles and Congregational Church of Christian Fellowship, I said, you know, I'm going to have a very short and brief career in the United Church of Christ if I only pastor black churches. Mm -hmm. And so I said, these folks claim to be liberal. Let me see if they really <laughs> mean what they say. <laughs> and so when I started searching, I searched at primarily Anglo congregations. And yes, I encountered racism and discrimination. And, um, but Pilgrim had already discussed the question of whether they were open to a black pastor. And so it was interesting um, when I was doing a telephone interview with the search committee and, you know, they had read my profile, as we call it, resume, curriculum vita, that talked about activism and Denver and education at Harvard and Union Theological Seminary and postgraduate work at Claremont School of uh, Graduate School in, in Bible and all that done at, in Los Angeles and right. I had begun to write uh, commentary for the Los Angeles Times and on and on and on. They said to me, um, "Well, they said first, well, do you have any questions?" And uh, they said to me. Um, we have one last question. And they said, what do you want with us? This little church down yeah, in Carlsbad, yeah. California. Yeah. And so, you know, I said, what I just shared, I said, I want, I want to have this. I want to continue my ministry. And if I'm going to continue my ministry, then it's going to be churches like Pilgrim Church in Carlsbad where I have to submit my profile and, and to, to be called if I'm to continue in this denomination. But it, it, it's, it does, again, go back to what I've been saying over and over. What's the cost yes. of discrimination that we bear? Yeah. I mean, just on paper, Dan, I should have been called to a church twice the size of Pilgrim. Mm -hmm. And I applied to historic churches in Boston and, and, and Connecticut and, and other places. Didn't even get an interview. Hmm. And so... As with my parents, what woulda, coulda, if I had been white and been called to such a congregation, 
What would my lifetime earnings have been? What's the difference? That's the price that black people pay for racism and discrimination. Yeah. Now I've had a good life all along. I'm not complaining, but I'm just making the point that the costs of racism are borne primarily by black people. Yes. Or by the victims of racism. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like in the spiritual side of the equation that the conversations that you started many years before that went on after the uh, after the insurrection, insurriot. Yeah, upriot. Yeah, that that was kind of in a way that this this location proved to be a continuation. Well, that's because, is there anything to that? Well, that's because white supremacy still hasn't been defeated. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of choosing this particular congregation to serve. Well, I'll, I'll say this: it's never been more meaningful than in this past year. Hmm. With the world coming to the reckoning of how a civilized culture as ours claims to be can f sit by and watch a man be basically choked to death for nine minutes on national television and not be outraged and not do something about it. Yes. And so I've been here 16 years, and this is the most meaningful year of my ministry here. And yeah, so sometimes you, you come to a place for a purpose, but that's not immediately revealed or taken up. And so I'm glad to be here, and I trust the people at Pilgrim are glad for me to be here in this historical moment. Well, and you've done some very noteworthy work here on race relations. Um, you know, you've held, to my knowledge... Uh, there's two book clubs that explored books such as Caste and White Fragility. You brought an icon of the civil rights movement, James Lawson, to preach. Uh, that was extraordinary. I got to... Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I had been friends with Dr. Lawson, who was the pastor of the United Methodist Church that had invited Martin Luther King to Memphis to help with the garbage workers strike, the sanitation workers strike when he was killed, when he was assassinated. James Lawson left Memphis and came to Los Angeles and was there for decades. And I knew him as a colleague. And in fact, he was the chairperson of the board of directors for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which Martin Luther King and others started he was chairperson of the Los Angeles chapter and invited me to be a member of that board. So we had known each other from that work and across the decades. I had heard him speak 90 years old, yes. dynamic speaker that and keen intellect that he is. I had heard him speak in February and went up to him after the, the presentation and invited him to Pilgrim in September. Little did we know that George Floyd would happen in May, right. that the pandemic would happen. And so I was honored and thrilled when he consented to come to us through Zoom in September. And then, as you'll recall, um, yes, we did read in our what we call our anti-racism book club, uh, White Fragility, followed by Cast. And we had almost a hundred people to 
attend our Zoom book club for White Fragility and another 50 to attend the book club for, for Cast. We had overflow uh, uh, demand for our 100 Zoom account for that Sunday morning uh, for Dr. Lawson. And then the following month was Professor Melina Abdullah yes, from I recall. Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And and she came here. So I was I felt honored to be able to bring these kinds of activities to Pilgrim Church. And how do you feel about the reception of these initiatives? I was I was really thrilled with like I say the response of, right. of over 90 registrants for the book club and and it was very enlightening to, to be in the book club with our congregation yeah. and to hear the honesty and to hear the stories. I mean, you know, we're in California, but, you know, California is one of those places where everybody's from somewhere else. That's true. And so people had stories from Georgia and Illinois and Florida and Alabama and from all over the country. So yeah. it was quite revealing. And I, and I, I trust and believe that the congregation of those who participated, because it wasn't just the congregation, that was the other thing. It was, a, in a sense, a great outreach tool. We had uh, friends of our congregation and others who found us that wanted to join the book club. Well, I was part of both of those book clubs, and I loved it. It was yeah. terrific. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we're going to continue. I don't know if you've, you've, you've read the, the announcement, but we are going to read James Baldwin, Notes of a Native Son. Yes, and the fire next oh, time. Oh, that's going to be good. In, in February. We're having this conversation on a very historic day. Today, uh, Donald Trump spoke to a crowd he invited to Washington to march on the Capitol. Uh, he told them it would be, in his words, words, wild. The Capitol was breached and vandalized. Congress had to be evacuated, and a woman was shot. And personally... I'm fighting a real range of emotions from outrage to grief today. And I do so realizing there's really no comparison to the emotions most of the African-American community has faced through the, for centuries. Um, but in the face of injustice and violence, how do we deal with our anger? How do we deal with our sorrow? Well, I think we have to deal with it honestly. Because sweeping it under the rug is how we got here. We have to tell the truth. And this four, last four years, America, or a healthy chunk of America, has simply abandoned the truth. Trending on Twitter today is a tweet from um, Lindsey Graham from 2016, where Lindsey Graham said, if we nominate Trump, we will be destroyed and we will deserve it. Wow. And one of the responses to that historic posting said, you know, that Lindsey Graham guy had, a, ha had it about right. <laughs> but For he, a abandoned, while. he abandoned the truth that he spoke. Yes, yes, he did. And we are witnessing unprecedented attack, an unprecedented attack on our democracy. This was planned, Dan. You already quoted Donald Trump as saying, it's gonna be wild. Yeah. He knew what he was planning and what they were planning. He convened this gathering 
in Washington, D.C. on this day to protest the certification of his loss in the presidential election. He met with Vice President Pence yesterday and, and told him to not certify the election. Pence responded that he cannot stop the certification process. And so that's why Trump spoke at the time that he did today, knowing what time Congress would convene. That's why he stopped speaking at the precise time that he did and told the crowd of 50,000 or however many to go march on the Capitol because he knew they were about to begin the deliberations and to begin counting the ballots. They had just announced the first objection to the state of Arizona and they were going to debate, but everyone knew that the inevitable outcome of this day would be the certification of Joseph R. Biden and Kamala Harris as president and vice president of the United States. So he sicked his thugs on the Congress to disrupt and prevent the certification. It's a criminal act. He's responsible for inciting a riot, should be removed from office, prosecuted, and put in jail for this and the myriad of other crimes he's committed. Yeah. But certainly, this sedition, this is not just inciting riot, this sedition has serious consequences for our democracy and should have serious, serious consequences for Donald Trump's freedom. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, the point has already been made today, and I'll make it here. Can you imagine what would have happened if a Black Lives Matter protest had stormed the Capitol building? No, I can't. I can't. So you know. I say that blacks pay the price of racism, but today America paid the price of racism because they did not police their own the way they should have policed them. They let them get away with it because they were white like them. And America is paying the price for that racism today. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm thinking now of my impressions of Dr. Lawson and, you know, coming to know you. And, and when I think Dr. Lawson, one of the things that really impressed me about him was his humility. I mean, the guy is a historic figure. He is a powerhouse, yes, he is. Yes, he but is. he was so amazingly humble and so kind in the face of all the outrage he must have seen and endured himself. Absolutely. That I don't know what to say about it other than that. You well, know, while he is kind and while he is humble, he is those things. He is passionate for justice. Yeah. He is passionate for justice. So those qualities, and and actually learning that that you went uh, that that your studies had to do with leadership and and that, I'd like to ask you about some other qualities against the backdrop of this country in crisis. Tell me about courage. Mm. Courage is what my father showed when he stood up to the draft board and when he stood up to McCarthyism. Courage is what my mother showed when she stood up to the discrimination that she experienced. 
courage is what my grandfather on my father's side showed when he made sure the black farmers received the benefits that they were due. Courage is what my grandfather on my mother's side showed when he paid his own way because the black mail carriers couldn't be seen talking to him or they would lose their jobs, let alone support his foray for justice to Washington. Paid his own way to Washington, D.C. to confront the postmaster general of the United States to win his cause against discrimination. That's courage. I am just walking in their shadow, just walking in the way that they've paved. Uh, I hope that when it counts, yeah. and you've heard me say here at the church, we only get two or three times in our lives to truly be a Christian. Everything else is rehearsal. Coming to church on Sunday, singing the songs, praying the prayers, that's just practice for when it really matters whether or not you're a Christian. And so I just pray that when it really matters in my life, I'll have the kind of courage that my grandparents mm. and my parents have. What about humility? What, what role does, or what place does humility have in times of strife? It's about letting the truth and the cause be front and center and putting our ego and our self-interest behind. And that's essential for progress. And that's why Donald Trump's total lack and unfamiliarity with humility is so damaging to our country. And we all saw it. We knew the man was out for himself. The article in the Atlantic a couple of issues ago had the headline, 70 million people chose the sociopath. Hmm. This is a real reckoning for America. You know, given all that, there's still a place for other qualities. And what place do you feel confidence and certainty have? My confidence and certainty is, is in my faith in God. And for me, my favorite passage is from 1 John 4, God is love. I believe in love. That's what makes us human. And the more human we are, the more hope we have. Hmm. And so if we lose sight of that, if we lose sight of what love must, how love must prevail in our world, if we, then we lose sight of our humanity. And if we lose sight of our humanity, then we're the animals that we fear we can, we're capable of being. Looking forward, do you feel optimism? If you'd asked me that yesterday, when the Senate races in Georgia were leaning toward the Democrats and that we might have some progress in 2021 to fight all the fights that we need to fight, the fight for justice, the fight against coronavirus, the fight for equality, the fight for 
income equality. I, I was much more hopeful yesterday. I fear now for tomorrow. Yeah. If there were 50,000 people today storming the Capitol, there'll be 150,000 tomorrow. And I don't know what's going to happen. So I don't know. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll just have to see. Madison, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. And one of the other things that I love about the times that I've spent with you is you have a remarkable sense of humor, and I love that, too. (laughs) Well, thank you. We've got to have some humor. We we laugh to keep from crying. And if if ever that was true, it's true today. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. my conversation with Reverend Madison Shockley, as with really many others I've interviewed for Unspoken Unsung, I wanted to go on for hours. The intense emotion of what was going on in our nation's capital, even as we spoke, made this an extraordinary conversation for me, and I hope for you, our listeners. Join us again next month for another episode of Unspoken Unsung. show's host and producer is Dan Danner. Martin Danner engineered the recording. Post-production engineer was Ken Langen. Additional recording and mixing was done at Brother Rock Projects, Carlsbad, California. If you like our show, please subscribe, rate, and review it. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts you enjoy. Also, check us out at conversayer.net. That's C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-Y-E-R. Conversator.